Thank you, Greg and worship team. Love it when we praise the Lord together in song. It's a good thing. I'm blinded by the light. Don't go to the light. Don't go to the light. So we'll see who's thinking clearly this morning. What is a group or a collective name for the following animals? Ants. Colony, that's correct. Uh, wolves. Very good. Geese, when they're on the ground. Gaggle is correct. Kittens. Litter is correct. Cats. Yeah. So here's what I got. So this is from the internet, and as you know, everything is correct on the internet, right? You don't ever question anything. Uh, clouder or nuisance. There's actually a couple other names for them as well. Chickens. You know, that's what I would have said, but brood. Frogs. Army. Cheetahs. Coalition. Buzzards. Wake. Bullfinches. Everybody knows this one, right? Bellowing. Foxes. Leash, gorillas, band, hedgehogs, array, lizards, lounge. <laughs> Seriously. All right. It's from the internet. Come on, don't argue. Lions, pride. There we go. Let's see, I got a few more. Crows. Murder is correct. Uh, Cockroaches. Intrusion. Owls. Parliament, that's right. Salamanders is Congress. Something about that that makes sense. Yeah. Prairie dogs, of course, is cottery. Pigs, I would have never got this in a million years. So what, probably what you're thinking, I would have said herd or something. Drift. Wombats. I write this one down. Wisdom. Who knows? And the last one I'm going to give you is alligators, and that, of course, is congregation. Congregation. <laughs> Seriously. You, you might think of it that way. So what do you call a group of Christians? Church. Church. It's a collective word for Christians. In fact, it translates a word that just means assembly from the original language. Uh, so that's basically what it means, a gathering of people. And so the New Testament writers and Jesus adopted it, adapted it into the description of a gathering, a collection of Christians. Church. What we want to know more than just the names of gathered groups of animals or Christians is what do they do when they come together. So we're going to talk about that this morning, the church community life. You may not like those words, but uh, that's the words we're going to use. So what is their community life like? What do Christians do when they come together? 
what should church community life be? In the text we're going to look at from Acts chapter 2, actually doesn't use the word church. Luke, who's the author of Acts, doesn't use the word church until Acts chapter 5. And then it's always used, almost always, for uh, Christians who meet together in a region like Jerusalem or Antioch and so on. So this passage doesn't tell us everything about the nature of the church, but it does tell us about what uh, a snapshot of church community life. So let's look at it together. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This happens right out of the first sermon that Peter Peter preached after the Holy Spirit came upon the people at Pentecost. He calls them to faith. About 3,000 respond, and so this is what happens. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Father, we need your help this morning to understand and apply your word. We need to grow in our appreciation for what you designed the church to be, how you designed it to function. And though we don't have everything in this text that tells us all there is to know about who we are as a church community, I do pray, Father, the things that you, you show to us today would, would help encourage us to be about the things you want us to be about for the glory of Christ. Thank you, Father, for causing us to become part of his body. It's in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. So in that first verse, uh, verse 42, it's significant that right from the start, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the first in gathering of new Christians... that they immediately begin meeting together for God's word and worship and fellowship. Their community life consisted of four areas, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing meals, which probably included the Lord's Supper, and prayers, those four things. They devoted themselves continuously to these four areas. Uh, We're going to notice that we're not Jewish people back 2,000 years ago. And so there's some differences between what they experience and what we experience. But I do believe these four things are fundamental to the life of the church today. And at a more fundamental level, we need to say it's not the norm for Christians to not be part of a church where they can share in this community life with other followers of Jesus. We need a band of brothers and sisters. We need a family to participate with in growing together in Christ. And the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. So thus, why we quote-unquote go to church, if that's not even the best way to put it, we'll talk more about that. So in our culture, the lack of access is not a problem. We've got lots of individual churches all over the country. The main thing that we struggle with, or things that we struggle with, would be individualism and skepticism due to not finding the perfect church, except Harvest must be close, I hope. 
Um, church hopping is like family hopping. And there's a time for searching, but church hopping is not the ideal biblically. A survey by the Barna Group in 2013 asked over 1,000 American adults the following question. What do you think about going to church? About 30% of Americans say attending church is very important, which is, seems still kind of high for me in our culture today. But uh, 40% are ambivalent. They don't care much about one way or the other about attending church. They don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. And 30% say attending church is not important at all. Those who are ambivalent about attending church gave two top reasons for their ambivalence, for their, I don't care, it's not big one way or the other. And uh, that is, I find God elsewhere, 40% of them say that, and it's not personally relevant, 35% say that. And some also uh, point to the moral failures of church leaders and hypocrisy in the church. So standard things that we object to about why I might not value the church. Uh, some don't reject the idea of being part of a local church altogether, but they'll point to this very passage that we just read, and they'll say, because I haven't found that ideal church, I'm, I'm not going to participate. So that's, that's another issue that people struggle with. So let's consider how this text can apply to the church today. So first, we'll just take a brief look at these four areas. The apostles' teaching. Uh, Jesus had told the apostles they were to teach everything he had commanded them. And so for 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, Jesus gave the apostles graduate-level instruction in the kingdom of God, meaning he taught them, based upon his death and resurrection, how it fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, which is the Bible that they had then, and, and, uh, and then described further how we are to live in light of his death and resurrection and his living and his soon and coming return. So they taught the people that. Um, as they committed their teachings to writing, we got the Gospels, the letters, and Revelation. That's today is our New Testament. So uh, what does this look like today? Is, this is very basic stuff, everybody. So hang in there. We, that's why we teach the Bible. That's why we teach the Bible here on Sunday mornings. That's why we teach it in small groups. That's why we teach it in our children's ministry. That's why we teach it in our youth group. Because the Bible is the Word of God, and it is the treasure of the church, is what we're supposed to be about. Uh, and as important as it is for us to have our own personal Bible reading, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we do far better when the, when the, uh, the Bible is a community, uh, when we share it in community with each other. We do a whole lot better in working through interpreting it, reading it, interpreting it together, applying it together. We need to study and apply the scriptures together in community. In fact, I think one of the neatest things going right now is the, the Wednesday morning group meets at Sherry Richter's house. Wednesday evening group. Sorry, I knew better than that. Uh, they're just reading through big swaths of the scripture, like chronologically, and they're getting a lot out of it, and they're having fun doing it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so, I mean, just the Bible is adequate. It's, it's the curriculum that we use. And we might find tools that help us understand it better, but bottom line is the Bible is, is not just a springboard to, to take off our own ideas. Oftentimes it gets used for that. People will say, well, we teach the Bible, but it becomes more of a springboard to spring off into what I really want to say is, as opposed to saying what the Bible says. The remaining three areas, fellowship, Breaking of bread and prayers, I'll just briefly talk about. We'll get more into fellowship 
later. But fellowship is the word. You may have heard this. A lot of churches have a Sunday school class or something by this name, koinonia. It's a Greek word that means shared common life together, what we share in common. Uh, Basically, fundamentally, it's also used to talk about how we are united with Christ. So we have living fellowship with Jesus Christ because we are united to him through the Holy Spirit, and he, he lives in us, and we live in him, and so that's the foundation for our Christian fellowship together. But the word here is used for what we do when we're together. So they continually shared life together. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Breaking of bread basically means they ate meals together. So if you need to have an excuse to get together with other Christians and eat, right here. And they did it. They, they ate meals together. That often included the Lord's Supper. And then they prayed together. Whenever they met, prayer was central. Okay, so then verse 43, we see that all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Just as Jesus did miraculous signs when he was on earth, so did the apostles as evidence that they were sent by Jesus as his representatives to establish his church. In this way, they were unique. They weren't doing signs as magicians just to wow and attract people, just the same as Jesus was not doing that, but as signs of the breaking in of a new age. This is the Jesus community is being gathered. There's a new work going on, so... God granted them signs and wonders through the hands of the apostles to demonstrate that they were his authorized uh, representatives and they were carrying on the message and the work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit who empowered them also was the one who miraculously causes the new birth. So it's a miracle that any of us, if you're a Christian today, you are a living miracle because God's created in you new life that you could not have done yourself, you couldn't have started yourself, you couldn't have jump-started it yourself. It is just God miraculously giving you new life in Christ. So that is one of the greatest miracles of the Holy Spirit. The church by nature, then, is not merely a human organization. We're united to believers, to the risen Christ, by the Holy Spirit. The church is being created by the Holy Spirit, who works in power and to and through the church in ways that are very subtle and in ways that are very overt and obvious, very obviously, miraculously, and very often in the mundane every day as well. So the Holy Spirit is the agent of growing us in Christ together. He is at work in our body. And while it's true that every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament describes uh, us as Christians as being united to a body, the body of Christ, the church. So when we're born again, when, we're, when we get new life in Christ, we are united to his church. It's not something that happens later. It happens from birth, new spiritual birth. And therefore, there's a dynamic that happens only when we're gathered together that we miss out on when we don't gather with other believers. The less we participate in church community life, the less we experience of the working of the Spirit since He works in unique ways when the church meets together. Now, sometimes we experience that Spirit's Christ-magnifying, Christ-conforming work, which is the Holy Spirit is so about that, so about magnifying Christ, causing us to see how glorious He is and drawing us to Him and conforming us to Him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's His goal. That's His job. That's what He loves to do. And sometimes we see that in amazing, miraculous ways, and other times, we, we, uh, m- most of the time, we experience it in the normal week-in, week-out participation in community life. So, one thing we don't want is the ministry here at Harvest 
If the Holy Spirit were to exit our lives, would we be just the same? Uh, We want the only explanation for what's going on at Harvest, or any church that preaches the gospel, to be it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, that doesn't always mean the big, glitzy, glamorous things, obvious things, but in subtle ways and in ways, uh, all kinds of ways, the Holy Spirit is at work, and we desperately want His work to be the power, the power of the church. In verse 44 and 45, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this is one real tangible expression of koinonia, of fellowship, of community. Life is meeting one another's needs. This basic uh, community 101. Because of their relationship in Christ, they love one another as a family. You know, family members each have their own things, right? I mean, we, we have our own clothes. We have things our own computers and so on and so forth. But when another family member is in need, they will meet the need to whatever extent they can. Of course, we try to teach our kids to share, and hopefully we are making progress in that area, even when they're growing up. Uh, but so it, so it was like that in the Jerusalem Community Church. This wasn't communism. This wasn't a forced relinquishing of their stuff and forcing them to sell and put it into the community pot. The selling of their things and distributing the proceeds was an expression of Christian fellowship, of relationship and church community life, according to the need. It was according to the need. It was their privilege. Of course we will share what we can. So again, this is basic koinonia, church community life 101. The church family takes care of those in need in the church family. And it should be from the heart, by the way. Um, In 1 Corinthians 8, we read that they gave of their own free will, begging the apostles earnestly for the favor or the grace of taking part, that's koinonia, in the relief of the saints. So they were begging, oh, P- Apostle Paul, the Corinthians, saying, please let us give to the needs of the saints. Wow, this would be our heart. We really want to help people in need who are in the body of Christ and beyond, but right now we're talking about the body of Christ. So I think we're not totally negligent here at Harvest in that area. Uh, every once in a while, we still run into a situation where how did that get by us? How did this thing, this need come up? We weren't aware of it. But I think we have a heart to do that here, and so uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by how this body responds to needs. I know we can always do better, just as we can anything else, but thank the Lord for that kind of heart set, mindset here. I'm kind of curious how they handled uh, this in a, in a newborn church of 3,000, because we're not quite there yet, Harvest. And I think they handled it in that way, um, as we'll see in, in verse 46, as they begin meeting in smaller groups. But this did become problematic very soon, because this perfect church did not last very long in perfection. They had a conflict. One of the first conflicts they had is, how do we take care of the widows? How do we distribute the money? And that, a few chapters later, they ran into that. But verse 46, we see more of the community life. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they continually met together in the temple precincts. Now, that would have been normal for a faithful Jewish person. So that wasn't unusual. If you lived in Jerusalem, you went to the temple fairly regularly. What was new for them is they did it as the Christ community. 
they attended together. And in the English Standard Version, the word together is a translation of a word that means with one mind, common consent. So with a new purpose, they worship and witness as the new Jesus community. This was their large group gathering for a time until, of course, at least the temple was destroyed or they got run out as opposition increased before the temple was destroyed. But they also met in homes. As much as they enjoyed the dynamic of a larger gathering for worship in the temple, they felt the need for connecting in a more personal way in homes. And that centered around taking meals together. There you go. There's another verse. you got two verses in this about eating together. Not gluttony, but, but eating together, eating meals together. Uh, that's the basic meaning of breaking bed. bread. It probably also included the Lord's Supper. And it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, that word generous also means humble and sincere. So basically what this is saying, Luke is saying that they gladly shared life and food with one another. They just simply and humbly, apart from the differences between them, they just enjoyed being together. They enjoyed eating together. They enjoyed fellowship together. They enjoyed hanging out together. So that's a biblical thing. And so let's do this some more, right, here at Harvest. We, we got round tables now. Did you know that? We got eight big round tables. So the next time we eat, which would be soon, we can share it around round tables instead of the big, long Tables where we're, we can't uh, connect with one another as well. So we are all about, we're all over that one. And we have food today after the service, right? So we're, we're being obedient. If nothing else, we're doing it. You know, when we overcomplicate church community life, we dilute the sharing of love and encouragement that Jesus intends. You know, the whole notion of just going to church falls short of Jesus' purpose of the New Testament picture of what the church is. So that when professing Christians scarcely participate in church community life, or not at all, they grow little in Christ, or perhaps not at all. And we see uh, a few decades later, this was written to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, uh, the author exhorted the people to let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we encourage one another. We share what God does in our lives. We share his word together so that we can help one another persevere in faith, how the Lord is blessed. We talk about how he's disciplined us, how he's taught us, mutual accountability. Hey, did you hear the sermon last week? Yep. Do you remember any of it? Nope. Well, okay, look. Well, we talked about prayer last week. So did anybody pray this past week? You know, we engage the word. We talk about how, how God's working it into our lives. And we need to come together to do that. And he says, do that all the more as you see the day drawing near. So one thing we should be reminding each other of is Christ is coming back. I mean, really, we're not, Christ is coming back. I don't hear him talking about that on CNN, scarcely even on Fox News, or ABC, NBC, or the only place you're getting it is the Bible and church. So there is an end coming, and it's a good end. People, well, the world might come to an end, global warming, all of that. You know, stuff happens in the world, disasters for sure, but Jesus is coming back. So did I tell you today Jesus is coming back, and does that encourage you? Do you want him to come back? Yes. Yeah, I mean, we should just be so eager for that, and we should be talking that up because we're not hearing it anywhere else. 
So if nothing else, before you exit the building today, remind someone, hey, did you know Jesus is coming back? Are you ready? Are you one? Are you, are you eager for that? In fact, uh, earlier in Hebrews, this one's not up on the screen, Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that tells me I can harden in my sin deceitfulness in a day or less unless one of you exhorts me, encourages me, and says, Hey, Pastor Gary, how's your walk? And I have to answer. And you can encourage me with the scriptures. You can say I'm praying for you. We, we need that frequent engagement in order to not be hardened by deceitfulness of sin. And that happens when we're together, not when we're not together. We need each other. We need Jesus, but we need each other. How can you love Jesus and not love his church? Church isn't perfect. I know. How can you not love your family? Family's not perfect. I know. Family isn't perfect, but we love one another. You can't choose your family. Yeah, we can choose our church, but once we're in it, let's not be flaky, right? Flakiness is not a good choice. Let's be for one another. All right. Continuing on, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. So just continuing what he just said. They shared. Their, they met in the temple in large groups. They met in small groups in homes. They ate gladly and joyfully. They encouraged one another. Praising God and having favor with all the people. So joyful worship and exaltation of God and love and care for people do not contradict, but rather they confirm and contribute to one another. What I'm saying is God is high, exalted. He's holy. He's majestic. And yet he's compassionate and merciful toward people. So as we worship God for who he is, then we will grow in joyful exaltation of God as to how majestic and glorious and holy and high and other he is and how compassionate and merciful he is at the same time. It's not either or. He's both. He's those, both of those things all the time. Uh, so some churches, in an effort to exalt the worship of God, lose connecting with people. So you, you can see a big empty cathedral and imagine that, you know, three people meeting in a huge, majestic church. Or uh, others, in an effort to reach people, lose God. An extreme example of this might be so-called atheist churches. Have you heard about that? Yeah. So the concept started with two British comedians uh, who told the, the, the press, if you think about church... There's very little that's bad. It's singing awesome songs, hearing interesting talks, thinking about improving yourself and helping other people, and doing that in community with wonderful relationships. What part of that is not to like, says the atheist. So they want to come up with their own alternative. He says, the problem with me is I don't believe in God. So they started this thing called the Sunday Assembly. And those have started to spread around the world. So that's an extreme example of church without God, of trying to be good without God. Um, But at the same time, churches can so focus on people's needs and trying to win the favor of the culture that they practically diminish God. They practically diminish God. They try to make him so user-friendly, they end up with a caricature of God, a consumer God. On the other hand, churches can be so zealous to uphold a high view of God and emphasize his otherness and his power and his justice to the point that the God they present is a little different than Allah, the God of Islam. They may talk of his mercy, but demonstrate little of the compassion and love of God 
in Christ. So we must prayerfully, zealously pursue both high praise of God and warm, loving community. These things don't contradict. We do them together, both within the church and as it spills over into the surrounding community, as modeled for us in Acts. So, you know, how do we hold these things together rightly? The gospel. Because the gospel tells the good news of a glorious, majestic, holy God who really hates sin. And the bad news is that we're sinners, and so he would just hate us, except he provided a way of salvation through the death of his son for our sins. And through his resurrection, he conquered sin for us. And his son is now exalted in majesty, and and yet he's united to us little believers here on earth. So he's a majestic, holy God who didn't have to compromise his holiness and who, in his compassion, has reached down and loved us and saved us. So the gospel is, is that good news, bad news. The surrounding culture may be attracted to the compassion while rejecting the gospel message. At the same time, God may save some, as we see he does in these days. In the latter part of verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Well, it's true that God works through the church of his son, Jesus, as they live and speak the gospel to nonbelievers in order to, to save them. Uh, Romans 10 says, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? But it is God alone who saves. Yep, we must share the gospel and live lives in step with the gospel. We don't want our lives to be contradictory to the gospel, and we must speak it. God works through that to save people. But he Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, are, are the ones, is the God who gangs up on people and saves them. We are the, the message delivery people. But notice how Luke puts it. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. As they're being saved, the Lord added them to the church. So they were identified from the, the very beginning, their spiritual new birth, with the church as Christians. So this was a unique cultural setting, the Jerusalem, the, the Jews, the temple, at a unique time in the history of God's unfolding plan of redemption, the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus had just raised, so we're not in that time. We're not in that culture. However, uh, we really believe that these things really apply to us today. Apostles' t- teaching. Well, let's just, let me just close with this. Um, how might we apply what we've learned today? I'm just going to walk through what, just what we read and, and, and ask us to pray in light of these truths that God has revealed to us about the nature of the church community life. So first of all, let's be devoted to Bible teaching, sharing life together, meals together, and prayer. I mean, basic stuff. This is very basic stuff. But things to not forget. Bible teaching, sharing life together and fellowship, sharing meals together, and praying much together. Secondly, let's keep asking that God will work in the power of the Holy Spirit in our gatherings. Just ask shamelessly. Ask God. God, move in your Holy Spirit. When we meet in our small groups and our large groups, we need your Holy Spirit. We don't want to just get the results that we can do. That doesn't do us any good. It can lead to pride or it can lead to lack of growth. We want the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our midst. So, asking God for what he loves to do. And then thirdly, let's meet the needs of others by sharing what we have in terms of time, gifts of service, and meeting material needs. And then also let's pray that our large and small group gatherings 
will be characterized by unity and joy, gladness of heart, and good food. Yes, good food. Gladness, joy, encouragement. Really interacting with the word together. Not only that, something besides Seahawks and Blazer games and kids, although all those things matter to God, especially our kids, Seahawks and Blazers, they're people. Russell Wilson, he's a He's got a great Christian testimony, quarterback of the Seahawks. But uh, anyway, we need to do more than just talk about, hey, the weather and stuff like that. And then uh, we pray that we overflow with praising, exalting God and compassionate community, love for people, and that God would grant us favor with, with people. And then also because God saves, we long for and are burdened for and pray that people would be saved. People in our families would be saved. People in our community would be saved. Let's pray it generally. Pray it, God, save more people in our community, whether they come to harvest or not. Give us connections with people that need to be saved, as well as our family and friends that we know need to be saved. Let's just keep praying these things over and over again, knowing that God loves to save people, and he works through our prayer and our witness. Ask that we be a church that is welcoming community for people to receive Jesus and get connected and grow both when we're scattered, that we would be those kinds of people that are able to connect others to Jesus, and when we're gathered. 